the National Archives podcast series. Heidi Thomas, researching Call the Midwife. This talk was recorded on the 29th of March, 2016, at the National Archives, Kew. I'm here, obviously, as the writer and series producer of Call the Midwife. I've been working on the show for eight years now, because obviously we started five years ago on television, and I was working on it for a couple of years beforehand. I do do a lot of talks about behind the scenes at Call the Midwife. This one's slightly different. As you can see, it's called Researching Call the Midwife. So in a way, it's a bit more before the scenes. Um, I'll be talking about my research process, our process as a team, how we bring a very detailed, accurate historical program to the screens. We've got a long history now as a show, so I probably won't be able to cover everything. And if there's anything that you really do want to discuss, do bring it up later, because I'd be delighted. Okay, so researching called the midwife. So there we have our three lovely girls. This is what we call an iconic picture. We try and choose one for every series, which will jump out at you from a newspaper, a magazine, a video stand, whatever. And one of the really iconic things, as you can see, is the red cardigan. It's become a sort of instantly recognizable thing. I think this was my only contribution to the costume line of Call the Midwife. I arrived very, very late for um, my first location meeting for Call the Midwife. There'd been a terrible accident on the M25 and I was about four hours late. And when I arrived, the costume designer and the set designer were at daggers drawn about the colour of the uniforms. You always have to have a palette on a television show. And that would be the colour of the walls in an artist's house, the colour of the costumes, the certain colours that would be forbidden. There's other colours that will really sing out against one another or work in sync with one another. The original uniforms, as you know, had a Peter Pan collar and no visible buttons. And they'd sort of run their course, so we refreshed them for this series. But on this particular day of the meeting, the, the struggle was that we were trying with the nurses' dresses to reflect history, but we also had to put those costumes on screen in a way that would work. And I'm mentioning it now because it's almost a metaphor for how you make history and fact work on television as drama. The original uniforms were grey. They were worn with a grey coat and a navy hat. And you can imagine it would look dingy on screen. The actors would look mouse-like. They would feel uncomfortable. And I actually said, coming into the room at the point where they'd reached a sort of dead end, I said, what about red? They decided on the pale blue. And I said, red hats and red cardies. That will, the dresses will be authentic, but we'll have that pop of colour that will make it worthwhile on screen. And that's what happened. So as I say, that's a metaphor for the kind of process I'll be describing to you as we go through these slides. So Call the Midwife, the book, where it all began. Um, I was first approached by Pippa Harris of Neal Street Productions in 2008 about this book. It was newly published commercially. It had been published by a small medical press about two or three years previously. Jennifer Worth was a retired nurse and midwife. She only practiced midwifery for a very short period of time in the 1950s. She nursed throughout the 60s, uh, mainly in hospice care and cancer care. And then she had retrained as a music teacher and concert pianist. She was a very, very gifted woman with very diverse talents. Um, and her first book was actually a book about how she cured her own eczema through diet, um, which became a sort of cult hit. Her publishers had suggested there might be another book in her, and it was this, which is incredible, really, when you think about it. Um, it was offered to me in this form as hardback, just before it hit the open market. It was in development for BBC television for about two years. 
um, which is not unusual. And during that period of time, it became quite a bestseller. It was a book with huge word of mouth popularity. Women were saying to each other, read this book, read this book. It was doing the rounds of book groups. Um, mothers were giving it to daughters and vice versa. But when I was first given it, I'd never heard of it or of Jennifer Worth. But um, my husband says, he always remembers me going upstairs to read it. And I came down and said, I think I can do something with this. Um, which is possibly the greatest understatement of my life because it's <laughs> it has become, in our house at least, because I don't know if any of you know, but my husband plays Dr. Turner. It's become our sort of family business, really. I, I worry for our son who's at university that when he comes home, it's a bit like, I don't know, being a member of the Clark's family and coming home and all your parents talk about his shoes, but <laughs> <laughs> he bears it quite well. Now, the reason I wanted to show this image at first is look at the cover called Jennifer Worth, wonderful woman, I'm going to talk about her more, called The Midwife, A True Story of the East End in the 1950s. And again, that's part of the theme I'm going to talk about this evening, because as most of you will know, BBC television has very strong rules about compliance and truth, particularly in documentary. Around about this time, when I was first given the book, there'd been quite a hoo-ha in the press about a polar bear documentary, where footage of a polar bear had been in the wild had been supplemented by footage of a polar bear in a zoo. And this, the viewing public felt very cheated because that hadn't been made clear. There are other rules at the BBC, all of which I believe are good ones, which is if you're telling a story of somebody's life and you're using their real name, you have to be absolutely accurate. You can't change the facts. You can't manipulate them. You can't tie them in a bow. You can't separate them from one another. Facts are facts are facts. And as a dramatist, that presented me with a very significant problem because this book was an unputdownable read. It really was. But in places, half a page of Jennifer's writing would give you something that can give you an hour of drama. In other places, she might give you three chapters that would give you half an hour. And that's the way with all adaptation. I'd come to this fresh from Cranford by Elizabeth Gaskell, which is actually based on Gaskell's own memoirs, her own memories of her youth and childhood in Nutsford, Cheshire, heavily fictionalised. And I, I wanted to be able to do the same with Call the Midwife, but I knew that if this was true, if this was a documentary piece of work, there were going to be real constraints. And one of the first things you do when you're adapting a book for the screen is you start to break it down, you go through it, you make a lot of notes. And I was also looking for things that I could research more deeply um, and look into and get more information. And there were two things that jumped out at me. The first was a mention of Sister Evangelina, who ultimately was going to be played by Pam Ferris. And I, I didn't know that then. If I'd known, I would have been very thrilled because um, I had worked with her before. And it said that during World War I, Sister Evangelina had been parachuted down behind enemy lines to look after wounded soldiers. Now, I don't know a lot about aviation history, but I know parachutes weren't widely used in warfare until Operation Market Garden during World War II. And a little bit more research confirmed my suspicion. They were first used en masse by the Soviet army in 1933. So I immediately thought, that's not quite correct. And then there was another thing, the character of Chummy, played by Miranda Hart. It said her father had been the governor of Rajasthan. Um, and when I looked into that further, Rajasthan did not exist as a state until after partition. And thereafter, all the governors were in fact Sikh. So I thought, a novelist's imagination has been at work here, and so it proved. And that was actually an incredible liberation. I went to meet Jennifer Worth 
who's here, lovely Jennifer, in her home. This picture was taken in her home. And as you can see, by the time she was an elderly lady, I met her in her 70s, uh, music was the defining thing of her life. She always said midwifery and nursing was a dim memory. It was many years ago. And she confirmed that her, they were memoirs. It wasn't a documentary. And she and I worked together to make sure that the book itself, and in fact it was part of a trilogy, but two books in particular in the trilogy could be expanded and embellished to round out the characters. Sister Julienne, for example, was very liminal. She hardly had a role to play at all, although she was a character you couldn't miss. And Jennifer gave me her blessing, if you will, as a novelist, come historian. She gave me her ble blessing to do my job as a dramatist, and that my job as a dramatist was to make that work sing on the page. The characters have to feel fully rounded. The stories have to be, feel compelling. It had to be structured over six episodes. And therefore, one had to create a sort of serial strand. And we went to Chummy's love story with the policeman for that. And everything I did that could count as an alteration, in inverted commas, was actually to do with shoring up that material to make sure it was historically watertight and not just based on Jennifer's own memories, and also that it was medically watertight. And one thing Jennifer had done, which was actually a genius move, is she had asked an, a, a then-practicing midwife of her acquaintance, Terry Coates, to go through all of the medical passages which in the original book were just to, really to do with midwifery, to make sure that they were clinically watertight. Because as Jennifer said, I haven't practiced as a midwife for 50 years. I'm very rusty. So this lovely lady, Terry Coates, is here pictured on set with a newborn baby. And I think this tells you so much about Terry, who is indispensable to our show. That is a real newborn baby. She's talking to it. She's making it feel comfortable. Can you see the trust? It's absolutely slumped into our hands, the little hands and feet are against her body. She is on set on any occasion where we have a newborn or indeed any baby under the age of about one, Terry is always there. Sometimes she's literally under the bed because she doesn't like to be, seriously, she doesn't like to be more than arm's length from a newborn. The mum is often a very newly delivered mother. So we have her comfortable just a few feet away watching on a monitor so she knows her baby's safe. And Terry will often um, give the new mum breastfeeding advice. You know, we've often waited to do a take because the mum's feeding. And Terry says, no, don't disturb the mother. It's a new baby. <laughs> and what Terry says goes. And she went through all of Jennifer's books, and she does that with all of my scripts. And now I know enough about the nuts and bolts of midwifery. I have midwifery textbooks at home on Terry's recommendation. And I create the stories about the births. Now, what I must add at this point is Jennifer's books only gave us one and a half series of Call the Midwife, the first series and about half of series two. So all of series three, four and five have had to be created from scratch, both on a medical and a historical level. And dramatically, obviously, I bring a lot into the mix as a creative writer. Um, but nothing happens without Terry say so. And I sketch out the scenes in the scripts. Terry reads them, sends them back covered in red pen. And all I can say is five years later, there's a bit less red pen. <laughs> and um, quite recently, there was one birth where she actually wrote, I was so happy she wrote on my script, I have no comments to make on this delivery. And I thought, yes. I've done it. But it's very, very important, I think, for us as a show to know that we are absolutely anchored in what is correct. When we're filming births, obviously, part of Terry's role is we use a prosthetic baby. We have two or three at our disposal. Um, they're made of medical grain silicon, so when you touch them, they do feel like 
human skin. And it's the same grade of silicon that's used as, um, perhaps as a cover for an artificial limb. It's very convincing, both to look at and to touch. It will take makeup because um, the prosthetic baby is made up to match the real baby. As you can see, that baby had its head slicked with a little bit of oil because babies are born wet. And we wouldn't keep wetting a baby. So a little organic, it's usually organic grapeseed oil, which is tested on the baby at home a couple of days before by the mum. And um, Terry will manoeuvre the prosthetic baby and then manoeuvre the real baby as gently as possible in the same way. And so what you will see on screen is a combination of prosthetic baby footage and real baby. And this even extends to, we have a drawer full of umbilical cords. Um, <laughs> the varying thicknesses. Again, they're beautifully done by medical artists. But Terry will have a newborn in her arm like that, a real baby, and she'll be going through the umbilical cord drawer saying, this one. Because different sizes of baby have different sizes of umbilical cord and that was something I didn't know so I'm constantly learning and uh, as an executive producer of the show it, it, you know, it's part of my job to make sure all the visuals are just right and I know Terry will get it just perfect oops sorry see this is um, we use a lot of resources like this as part of the research component um, this was a study taken actually in the early 1950s of a midwife tending to a baby after a home delivery so you can see very cool midwife manky wallpaper the wooden headboard um, mum looking absolutely harrowed and at least 10 years too old to be having a baby um, <laughs> which is something we find in these archive pictures um, and one of the interesting things again if you think back to the red cardigan moment to make things work on television um, midwives would always wear a mask and the rule was at any point where the genitals of the mother are exposed so sometimes even in a clinic situation the midwife would wear a mask or handling a newborn for an extended period of time and we did some test shots and it obviously wasn't going to work on television because you can't distinguish the characters or hear them speaking and there was a sort of emotional barrier so we did sit down and discuss it at great length because authenticity is so important to us. But we decided that we would dispense with the masks. And we've changed that now. We have occasionally, once or twice, seen um, caesarean sections. And in an operating theatre, we do have all of our characters masked, because we, we just feel that that would be an accommodation too far. And, but as you can see, these vintage photographs form a real bedrock to our research. You get so much information from a still photograph. And what's quite interesting is whenever a director joins the show, most directors come and do perhaps two episodes per series, and we usually have new faces each series. A director will always work with a mood board, which will be, they carry them in, or sometimes two people carry them in, and they will be covered with photographic images, things they've cut out of newspapers, downloaded from the internet, and we always see pictures of this type. They will always go back to journalistic photography for their visual references. And obviously we encourage that. So um, here we have Jenny Agata as a nun midwife. Um, just here, this is of interest because the mum here is wearing one of our prosthetic bellies. Again, it's proper medical grade silicon. We have three or four of these in constant use and we usually replace them once every other series. Uh, we have them in different skin colours. Um, and that, again, they take makeup. But they're fitted in such a way that on one occasion, for example, we had a breech baby that had to be turned during delivery. And we can't actually get a baby doll underneath so that the actress knows what she's doing. You know, you don't just go and pretend you actually move that baby around. I wanted to show this picture because it reminds us that Jennifer Worth worked with nuns in the East End. It's very important to remember that. These women did extraordinary work. 
And part of my research when I first met Jennifer was trying to find out who the real nuns were because she had made them a promise that she would not reveal their identity. And that was for a very specific reason. Jennifer developed a very deep religious faith when she was in the East End. And she kept up her relationship with the nuns throughout her life, right up until, in fact, I first met one of first met one of the nuns at her funeral service. Um, one of the sisters came along to give a reading. But it was curious because when she had first written her first draft of her book, she showed it as a first port of call to the sisters who said, well, we love it, but it's not factual. It's not an accurate record of us. Some of the characters are fictional. Um, it is a brilliant depiction of the work we did and the way we live, but this isn't our story. And they asked Jennifer to change the name of the order, which she did, absolutely. And, you know, it took me about 18 months to get the truth out of her because I wanted to make contact. As you would imagine, I wanted to meet the order, talk to them. The directors, the costume designers really felt that we could bring something more authentic to the screen if we had that conversation. Anyway, as it happened, she let slip one day that they were now based in Birmingham. And by fortuitous coincidence, I have an uncle who is a vicar who was based in Birmingham for many years. So I rang him up and described the few facts that I had. And I said, Uncle Warwick, do you have any idea who they might be? And he said, I know exactly who they are. And I was with them two weeks ago on retreat. <laughs> and it was just such a bullseye. So he told me, and I rang Jennifer and I said, I have information. And when I said to her, uh, is the Order of St. Raymond an artist based on the community of St. John the Divine of Allenrock, Birmingham? She said yes, and the relief in her voice, to be honest, <laughs> sang down the telephone like an excerpt from Puccini. She was so relieved not to be bearing the burden of that secret. And what was lovely was... Um, I didn't actually go up on this particular day, but I've been to visit them many times since, and the sisters who are surviving have all become friends. Um, they no longer wear the habit, but they brought out the ha a habit that they kept in their own archive, which was exactly this outfit you see Jenny in. And because of the beautiful quality of this screen, you can see it's made of quite a heavy linen. It has to be ironed a lot, but it's very, very washable. Um, the colour blue that they wore was what used to be called sax blue it's quite a vibrant blue and it was going to look harsh on screen so we took it down to two tones which they were happy with but they even let our seamstress unpick the habit and she reassembled everything but just to see how the seams were put together because obviously it's all a very important way of looking at how it hangs and the, the wimple and the cap are absolutely identical. Um, one of the funny things is the nuns now no longer wear the habit. And Sister Christine said to me the reason for that was during the 1970s, the sisters, although they were still nursing in the East End, they didn't leave the East End until 76, was they actually became NHS employees and were expected to wear NHS uniform. And at that point they felt that was incompatible with their Christian witness and their statement of who they were and why they were doing that work. And they sort of came to a compromise where they wore white coats over their habits on the ward because most of them were working at quite a senior level in hospitals by that point. And Sister Christine said, at that point, birth was also becoming more active. And she said, when you're coaching women for an active birth and you're bouncing on um, a beach ball, she said, what you really want is a pair of slacks. Um, <laughs> and if I show you a picture of the nuns now, slacks to a woman. There you go. As soon as they were allowed to you know, dress practically for the work that they now do. They work with the homeless. And they're, they're just downsizing from their very big convent. Uh, it's just too big for them now. There's only five of them. And as you can see, they're all ladies of a certain age. But they're out there. They're, they're 
very committed to their religious lives and they do a lot of work with the disadvantaged. And those are the slacks made by Sister Margaret Angela, who you see in the middle there, who is a whiz on the sewing machine. And, um, but they all still wear these large silver crosses and they've all had those since they first took their vows. None of these ladies worked alongside Jennifer, although they knew her later because of her continued association with the order and they have been incredibly helpful to us. They're not official advisors but if we have a query about for, for example how the nuns should be seated when we move chapels between series two and three nuns would sit in choir so facing each other and we weren't quite sure how far the chairs should be apart etc etc. We ring them up and they will always answer our questions quite often on the same day and that's always done with great thought and care and we're very grateful to them and they also benefit financially via um, a literary trust set up by Jennifer Worth. They do receive an income from the profits of the television show so I think that's quite nice. It means there's a sort of, there's a kind of two-way um, stream of communication between us which is lovely. Now here we are in the artist's house. I just thought you might enjoy this picture because it really is a glimpse behind the scenes. Um, you can see this is checks before take. So you've got costume, if you look at Nurse Barbara Gilbert in the middle, somebody's adjusting her collar and somebody else is seeing to her hair at the same time. Um, camera work is going on, lights are being looked at, someone's up a ladder adjusting a light. Busy, busy, busy and particularly in the dining room it gets very crowded because you can have up to 12 people around that table and then at least as many crew. But we do all enjoy these days because it gives all of the cast a chance to sit together and work together when sometimes if they're working in twos and threes they may not see each other. I wanted also to draw your attention to the table and a famous Nanatus house type tea time. This is an ordinary weekday tea so um, we don't have flowers in vases for example but you've got the boiled ham the Webb's wonderful lettuce, no iceberg lettuce on this show, thank you very much, the pork pie, um, the tea set, which actually gets a bigger post bag than some of the actors. We're getting, <laughs> we get so many letters from people saying, um, my mum had that tea set, and they just want to sort of share that it's brought back a memory, or my mum still has that tea set and has broken the sugar basin, and you're like, well, you can't have ours. <laughs> but um, often our art department, they buy a lot on eBay, so we will often say to one of our young ladies, go on eBay and see if you can find a spare Royal Dalton Cascade sugar basin. Um, and this was a pattern that came out, I think it was 19 1953 or 54, but that's the kind of thing, it's not my research department, but as executive producer I will say, I don't like the look of that cup, and, and heads roll, you know, if, if it's datelined for perhaps the 60s. And what you soon learn when you work on a historic series is that people will be passionate about their sphere of interest, whether it's a pram or flowers perhaps, or china, and you have to get those details right, because if you get something like that wrong, somebody's faith in the whole show will be undermined and they at the back of their minds they'll be thinking well you know they're, they're using the wrong kind of tea set or those shoes didn't exist and they'll sort of assume that everything is no good so I always look at these small details as almost like our, our flagships they go before us and getting those details right is absolutely right um, this is Easter tea at Nanata's house and I'm partly showing it to show we have um, our cascade tea set again but our art deco cups that come out for big events and um, but as you can see this is we're on fete here so we've got the butterfly cakes I was very alarmed if I can just point 
just there, I thought that was a bowl of black cherries, and I did ring the office and say, I think I've just seen black cherries on the table for Easter, but it's grapes, so we're all right. And, but for example, in an earlier series, there was one scene where a family were eating a cooked lunch, oh, it was a Sunday lunch, and they had, our usual set dresser had a day off, she was actually expecting a baby and wasn't feeling too well, and the replacement person had put broccoli on the table. Nobody ate broccoli in 1959, and we went to, and this is, I'm very proud of this, but it was pure call the midwife, we actually sent that footage, because it was an important scene that had been filmed some weeks previously, um, into what's called the grade, which is a process where you can adjust the photographic image. It's a bit like Photoshop but you do it on a moving image and we decolorized all the broccoli so it looks like cauliflower <laughs> <laughs> and if ever you think we're slacking at the BBC I just just think broccoli cauliflower and and it is important to get those details right um, and that's just on a visual level also those who are just fans of the show would like might like to look at those lovely clothes this is Easter Monday in the Nata's house we just had Easter as you can see by the Simnel cake and everything and most of our costumes are vintage some of them are hi just hired and they will be altered to fit the actress some are makes but not many but as the writer I'm always very keen that our costume designers take character into account that's very very important um, and so for example Delia you can just see Delia peeping out from behind the call the midwife clapperboard and she's dressed very conservatively because her mother is there it's very important that you acknowledge those things whereas she's actually got a slightly more outre tasting clothes and she's she's even got a sort of lurex t-shirt that she rocks when her mother's not about so there's just that sort of sense sometimes and like I said for Barbara who is completely invisible behind the other clapperboard um, wearing a lovely dress but with a cardigan that doesn't quite go and sometimes I can put in a detail like that and that will help this was at the beginning we had a new costume designer and those little character things are very important because when people invest in characters they expect them to be behave in a co what I would call a cohesive way, that there's a kind of through line running through personality. And that's not just expressed in my writing, it's expressed in the way they're dressed, um, how they associate with other characters, what we might see them doing in their spare time. I mean, for example, those of you who follow the show now know that Trixie doesn't drink alcohol. And some people who are guesting on the show, perhaps as a writer or a director, struggle to get to grips with that. And they were like, well, what does she do when everybody else is drinking? Well, she drinks tea. But, you know, she won't drink alcohol again unless we there's a very big story. I mean, nothing like that is planned at present. So, again, that's the sort of detail. Another reason I wanted to show this one to you is because we're very conscious of the passing of time in Call the Midwife. And in Series 5, which you will have just seen, that was particularly important because we were dealing with thalidomide. I'll be talking about that in more detail. But this was set at Easter. Easter. Well, this is Easter Monday, so I know that's April the 3rd. And one of the reasons why I was very distinct in my mind about that, there's a lot of talk about the space race and the man on the moon. And that's because we're 10 days off Yuri Gagarin's great adventure in space. So it's something that's very live in the world of our characters. We don't talk a lot about the news, but there are some things that are so big in terms of affecting the human mindset that we like to reference them. So that was one thing, because normally we start each series... A year goes by in every series, and that's purely because at the moment we're locked into giving a Christmas special every year. So if you see Christmas every year, obviously a year has passed. But we would generally begin in March or April, and we would normally finish in October, November, in terms of screen passage of time. This year we knew we were stretching things out because some of the thalidomide events are very specifically datelined to December of that year, particularly to December the 6th. But I'll talk about that later. Another thing, I think if this is... Oh yes, this is just 
we get a lot of comment about our use of popular music in the show. We have wonderful, um, a wonderful composer called Maurizio Mantagnani, um, who provides all of our score, which is glorious. He's been with us for a couple of series now. But from the very beginning, I've chosen to use popular music of the period to just enhance the atmosphere and to give us a taste of the experience that our characters were having. And for that reason, this is Paris Sisters. We use this lovely track, I Love How You Love Me, in episode seven of the most recent series. But to begin with, we were set in 1957, and I was using a lot of vocal music that was coming from America at that time. It tended to be um, America, you know, sort of the four coins, the four tops, the four aces. It was always four men, but singing in um, very mellifluous romantic music, often based on standards from a previous era. And what I say to people, often directors, when they come in, is I don't want to hear Buddy Holly, because that was in the charts at the time. I want to hear the music that made women dream. I wanted the music that women fell in love to, and then the music that they do the vacuuming to when the love story is sort of collapsed a bit, like a souffle. I wanted that romantic soundtrack to people's lives, something that went, if you will, beyond the East End. And then as each year has gone by, we're now using Billy Fury and Helen Shapiro, and I love that because it shows that time is moving on, but it's still the same thing. It has to be romantic in some way and uplifting, not necessarily essentially not really music that men would listen to. Um, but I brought this up also because of part of my research process. YouTube is my friend. When I'm writing, I sit there thinking, I need a song with the word baby in from 1961. Um, it's a wide choice on YouTube. But I will sit there, as Dr. Turner will testify, and he hears the most beautiful music coming out of my study. But we do have a rule that, because we know which year each series is set in, we never move... We never have anything from after that date, but we, it doesn't have to be from the year in which that episode is set. It could be from perhaps two years beforehand or something. And the exception to that is if you hear music coming out of the radio, we are very punctilious and it has to be something that could have been heard on the radio in March of 1962 or July of 1962. If it's just used for the score or to cover a montage, I say as long as it's not later than that year, that's fine. But if it's you know, presented it as a, in a real-life way. It has to be absolutely accurate. But I think it's going with the music. It's very expensive to do, so we do it sparingly. And there will usually be a popular track in each episode, but we have to save up if we want to do it twice or three times. So we, we try and, you know, make it justified. So next. Ah, no, here's Dr. Turner. Um, the reason I've put this picture in here is, as I mentioned um, earlier, Jennifer Worth's books only gave us one and a half series worth of stories. And we had no idea at that point that the show would go on for five or six years. But we did know the BBC wanted at least one more or two more series. Um, it was in the scheme of things because it was so successful. So in series two, for the first time, I was looking at expanding on that material. And as Terry, our midwife, said, there's only so many ways a baby can come out. And I didn't want to write a story where it was complication of the week and we always nearly lost our mother because that's not the way birth works. So on the one hand, you can have ordinary uncomplicated home or maternity home deliveries. Um, where the story and the drama comes from the mother's situation. Is she in an abusive relationship? Is this a baby that's longed for after several miscarriages? You can do that as well. But I instinctively knew that if we wanted this show to have legs and to have depth and to have texture and to have resonance, we had to expand into the field of general medicine, um, mainly seen through the eyes of our Nanatas team, who, are, who have always been district nurses as well as midwives. But the spotlight started to shine on Dr. Turner. 
And this partly came about because I like to go as close to source as possible when I'm researching. And there's two ways of doing that. One is oral testimony. And after series one, um, we engaged the services of a professional journalist and researcher because we'd had so many letters from people saying, my mum was a midwife in the East End or possibly Glasgow or Liverpool. Or my mum was an urban midwife. And um, she it's brought back wonderful memories for her. And she just loves the show. And we think, oh, here's an address. Would, you, would your mother agree to be interviewed? So we were sending Karen, our lovely researcher, out to visit a lot of quite old ladies. I mean, some of these ladies were in their 80s and 90s and we had a wonderful resource from which to draw so that's taking research right back to the the most raw level you can and it was marvelous i don't think karen ever had a wasted visit and you also have the satisfaction of knowing that you're keeping people's stories alive um, but another resource that i've stumbled on in series two um, sorry series three but i'll show you this this is in the welcome trust an annual report of the Medical Officer of Health for the year 1960. And it's all statistics. These reports were carried out. I didn't know until I started to do my research into how I might research. Um, these were compiled every year from 1848 until 1978. And most of them, not all actually, probably a significant chunk, are lodged at the Welcome on facsimile. And it was this sort of thing. Now that looks like the driest read you could imagine. But for example, um, if you look at the amount of um, vascular, vascular disease, lung disease, um, a lot of smoking related illness. So you only have to spend a few minutes scanning up and down these and you think, my goodness, this is like a snapshot of the health of people in urban Britain at this particular point in time. There are other things, it's not just tables, but there's also a sort of a prose report from the uh, Medical Officer for Health. It mentions the health problems posed by caravan dwellers. I thought that's interesting. And because of the amount of building that was going on at the East End, there were a lot of Irish traveller communities, we would call them now, coming and living in London, working on demolition, road building, doing other things, but living very much separately and apart. The children weren't going to school. They were considered to be a sanitary risk, and nowadays we would call some of those attitudes racism. Um, but I thought there would be an episode to be gained from that, and so it proved. And we did what we do with all of our stories that involve um, a strong medical issue, particularly a particular disease, or a specific social group and we approached the Irish traveller community and they were fantastic. They were so happy at the thought of their community being represented. Not only did they read our script and give us some comments and they were positive comments but there were some things that were helpful. I had read in my own research about caravans being burned when somebody died and they said oh well if you want to do that we'll, we'll come and do it for you and when a community actually say we will put ourselves out, we will bring our own matches and we will burn this for you in a ceremonial manner it's like a gift from the gods. And not only did they come and do that and make sure we represented their culture correctly, they introduced us to, I don't know if people remember this episode, it was in series four, they, a wonderful singer um, called Thomas McCarthy came and actually sang our fictional character to her grave. And it was one of the most moving moments I think we ever had on set. And yet it comes from something as dry as this document. So, um, again, we found out about polio. I just thought this was it, because we ended up with a very emotive story about Dr. Turner and Sister Bernadette's adopt, um, her stepson having polio, 
one of the reasons we did it and we used Timothy was looking at those statistics. I realised very quickly that um, we were running out of time to cover polio as an active disease because by this point in our, in our history and in British history they were rolling out the vaccinations and it was close to being stamped out and so we seized the opportunity to do a polio story in our Christmas special because we wanted to reflect history as it was and not lose our chance. Um, again, um, the booklet alerted me to social issues such as the neglect of children. This story, which was episode one in series four, um, was about children found living in squalor. And it came from two sources. And I'm mentioning it because I have a sister-in-law who works in the family courts as a solicitor. And she told me a particularly harrowing story about children being found in squalor. She works in the Midlands and in her area. It will happen two or three times a year in the present day. And in the booklet I've just shown you, it mentions the cleansing station, which was actually a building set aside for people who were so verminous and dirty, they had to be industrially cleansed. And you may remember that sequence in episode one of series four. And um, if I flick quickly through the next couple of images, um, this is an image I told you about the directors coming in with photographs. Um, there's a whole sequence of pictures taken by Nick Hedges, a photographer in the late 60s, as part of a campaign run by Shelter, the homelessness charity. This picture is actually of a lady in Sheffield living in housing owned by the Steelworks. And if I just flip between the two, you can see how these images play off one another. Um, and this is another photograph from the same sequence. This is inner city Birmingham. And if you can see by the lady's beehive, this is later in the 60s, probably. I think this was 66. And when people say to me, and they did in the early years of called Midwife, nobody lived in squalor like that. Like, excuse me, this is actually 10 years after our starting point. People are living like this. I've just used this because if any of you saw the last episode of the last series, when Evangelina hears her last baby being born, um, she's in a landing stairwell with a sink and a gas ring and it was actually based on that photograph. Um, this is when the, the internet is not your friend. I'm just drawing your attention to this because um, on the BBC homepage it says Enoch Powell made an announcement that the pill was coming on the 4th of December. It actually says on this day, 4th of December 1961. This is not true. Everything that I was learning about the pill while I was researching the previous series suggests it was something that crept up on the British population. Yes, there was a point where it was licensed, but take-up wasn't immediate, partly because they were, they were very high in oestrogen and therefore difficult to take. There were a lot of side effects, and women didn't actually enjoy them, and husbands didn't trust them. So it was a slower burn than we're led to suppose. And, but I wanted to check this out. So what I actually did, and this is the kind of research I do to keep us on point, is I went to Hansard to see what had been said in Parliament on the 4th of December 1961. And it was nothing like that. What happened was one person asked Enoch Powell about the cost of the pill. There was no great thing. It was literally a four-line exchange. And I thought that was very interesting. I've looked at Hansard in the past to do with, I wanted to understand why in the late 50s it wasn't easier for Gaffinair to be distributed to um, labouring mothers at home, and it was because the machines couldn't be made fast enough. And questions were asked in Parliament about that in 1955. So if anybody here wants any tips about researching everything, I always say my motto is, trust no one, you're a screenwriter. Always go one source further back than the source you have in front of you. Now, I'm, I've, I'm moving on to thalidomide now because there's a few more things to say about research in depth. And hopefully, if those of you have seen our most recent series, you'll remember the story that we told 
Distaval, thalidomide. We think we know everything about it. What became obvious to me when I decided to tackle this story was people much younger than myself, I was born in 1953, don't know very much about it. It's a story that remains ongoing because of the, the struggles of the people who were impaired by the drug. And the younger generation, by which I mean people perhaps in their 30s, members of our own cast, are forgetting what happened. Um, my own research also pointed out to me that it wasn't just given for morning sickness, it was a sedative. So it was prescribed as a sleeping pill, it was in cough mixture. A lot of women took it before they even knew they were pregnant. And one of the things I was keen to do was actually set the record straight so that people were reacquainted with what it was. And that was out of respect for thalidomide survivors, many of whom I met as part of my research process. Um, here we have, we created a family. This is going back to BBC rules about fact and integrity. Baby Susan Bullocks is not based on any one thalidomider. We wanted to be able to tell the story as expansively as possible. Therefore, I wanted to create a situation where the parents had divergent attitudes, the mother in this case being instantly accepting and the father being very challenged by it. That was a very, very common pattern, although there are many instances of it being the father who accepted the baby and the mother rejecting it. If you see here, you've got um, the older sister Belinda and older brother Perry. And when I finally saw this still, I realised that up to a point I'd told my own story because I had a severely disabled brother, not through thalidomide, for other reasons, born in 1970. And in many ways, that experience is the experience of my family. So concomitant with my science research was also the human story. Um, this is the father looking at the baby. And as you can see here, um, he's holding a very severely impaired baby who has shortened arms, not the full complement of fingers, and the baby also has deformed feet. And I will show you briefly, if Jess is agreeable. Um, we do, I have brought a prosthetic model along with me. This is the same prosthetic model. What you saw on screen was a combination of our prosthetic model, who I will show you very briefly, because um, it's the size of a newborn. We created these deformities based on medical photographs, all of which are housed in the Wellcome Trust. Again, it's a slight hybrid in that we took the hands from one child and the feet from another. Um, of the 400 plus babies born in Britain, 10% or more than 40 were what were then termed four-limb deficient. Um, and therefore, we had a very strong historic model for it, but we weren't plundering one child's life. And I'm very glad we took that approach, because having met so many thalidomides since, as part of the research and afterwards, um, you realise you're telling a very important story on their behalf. I'm going to finish with this image now. I saw this image on in a newspaper, and it was actually published with some screen grabs from, from the first episode, which shows Rhoda, the mum being told the news, looking at her baby, introducing the baby to the siblings. And a picture of this child was used in the same article. I'd seen this picture during my research. And when I looked at that picture, I didn't think, oh my god, that child is grotesquely deformed. I thought, that child is so loved. And you know how I know that? Because of his hand-knitted clothes. My grandma always used to say in the early 60s, I like to see a baby in hand-knits because they look loved. And somebody had knitted that child's clothes so that his hands can come out of the sleeves, he's got little shoes on his feet. And those, those hand-knits are well bobbly. And that means that baby has been cuddled and loved and adored. 
And almost the first thing that happened when this publicity piece went out is we had a letter from that child grown up. He's called Ed Freeman. He is the most delightful person. And he wrote to us and said, oh, that little chap is me in that article. And he told us something of his own experience. And said that and then we've been in correspondence since and met him and he's met baby Susan and he said thank you for telling our story with such dignity and sensitivity and that brings me full circle to call the midwife a true story is a true story the story that just replicates the facts as they were or is it a story that you shape and hand it back to the people who inspired it and they say that is my story anyway that's it so This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.